democracy is a system that works with compromises. Mm. If you are willing to compromise with only 60% of the population, you have ruled out 40% of the population. It means you're willing to repress them. And now, the good fight with Yasha Monk. Around 2015, it looked for a short moment as though the far left was going to transform the politics of Europe and perhaps the whole of the Western world. Jeremy Corbyn took the leadership of the Labour Party and was extremely popular in Britain for a while. In Spain, Pablo Iglesias, a Marxist academic who used to teach classes like cinema and hegemony, managed to transform an anti-capitalist street movement into a political party, Podemos, which was in some elections beating the traditional center-left party, the PSOE. In France, the arrival of Emmanuel Macron humiliated the old moderate socialist party and seemed to place Jean-Luc Mélenchon, a self-declared communist, at the front of the left. And most importantly, of course, in Greece, a complicated centrist coalition government was washed aside by the rise of Alexis Tsipras and his Syriza party, a coalition of different leftist splinter groups. In the United States, a lot of people were explicitly saying that this is the model which the American left should follow. From Jacobin, which was talking about Corbyn as a blueprint for the American left, to politicians like Rokana, the congressman from California who said that the European left was both morally and strategically right. Well, a few years on, it does not look like that anymore. The extent of the reversal of fortunes for a lot of the left is astounding and has not sufficiently been noticed on this side of the ocean. Jeremy Corbyn has been completely out of step with most of his young base, which once loved him, in essentially wanting to take Britain out of the European Union and even opposing a membership in the single market. And he has been plagued by his utter unwillingness to deal properly with anti-Semites within the Labour Party, who have been emboldened by some of the people around him. In Spain, Podemos at the European elections was down to 10%. In France, Jean-Luc Mélenchon took the exact same 6% for which he had once mocked the Socialist Party. And most importantly, the recent elections in Greece have put new democracy, the party whose defeat Tsipras had once hailed as a sign of the changing tides, back into government. Now, I think there's a couple of important lessons here for the American left. The first is that some of their appeal was always negative rather than positive. When Bernie Sanders did so well in the primaries in 2016, a lot of it was not owed to him being a socialist, it was owed to him being the one real alternative to Hillary Clinton, who was deeply unpopular. The second is that a lot of things which work in opposition 
cease to work once you are more visible, once you actually take the leadership of an opposition party or are in government. The left needs to resolve its contradictions and it needs to speak to the actual concerns of people rather than sloganeering about things like socialism if it wants not only to have a chance to lead the left for a few years, but to actually win power and check the dangerous rise of the populist far right. Well, now it's my real pleasure to introduce a conversation with a scholar I've been reading for a long time and whose thinking about social change has particularly influenced me. Timo Kuran is an American political scientist with roots in Turkey and he has written one of the most important articles about the revolutions in 1989 and the dynamics through which protest movements can affect politics. He has many wonderful books including Private Truths, Public Lies, The Social Consequences of Preference Falsification, and if you want to understand more about how social change happens, how people can or cannot overthrow authoritarian regimes, uh, this conversation is just what you need. Welcome to the podcast, Timur. Thank you very much for inviting me. Listen, I've got to start at the point where I suppose I first encountered you, which is in graduate school, you read the big field survey of comparative politics. And one of the texts that any decent course in that will teach is a really influential set of articles you wrote about the idea of preference falsification and the way in which individuals in authoritarian regimes and in some other political contexts are not going to be open about what they believe. That much is clear. That's an obviously intuitive thing to grasp. But you had really interesting ideas about how cumulatively that can lead to very unexpected political outcomes and how the difficulty of explaining sudden changes in politics, like revolutions against authoritarian regimes, can be understood as a set of cascades that follow from the way in which people choose to reveal those preferences. Explain what all of these concepts mean and how they can help us understand something like the downfall of communism in the late 80s. So the basic insight was that the very phenomenon that holds together a repressive society can also prevent us from seeing that it is tremendously vulnerable and from seeing its sudden collapse. Right, because I have a reason not to say what I think, but as a result, I don't know what you think either. And all sorts of things can be happening, dynamics can be occurring under the surface of a society that aren't seen by outside observers that aren't seen by dissenters, by leaders who are trying to bring down the regime, that are not seen by leaders of the regime who are, of course, trying to keep dissent repressed and preventing it from coming up to the surface. But some minor event can then trigger a process whereby the support for the regime unravels. And why does it suddenly unravel? I mean, how if I'm living in an authoritarian regime and it's so repressive, there's such risk in me saying what I really believe, um, why would a small event change that? It's something to do with dynamic and the distribution of preferences, right? So the regime has to decide when to use force 
and when to allow people to let off steam. So some regimes, Portugal and Spain were good examples. So Brazil, when, during its years of repression, was a good example. Regimes allowed people to express dissent at football stadiums. Mm-hmm. But the same dissent expressed outside of the football stadiums could get you in trouble. And this is a conscious decision to give people an opportunity to let off steam. Every repressive regime makes this calculation, but no regime can always get it right. Mm. So in the case of the events that started the collapse of communism or brought the end of communism, the demonstrations in Leipzig, the regime discussed, we know from records of the East German Politburo, that they did discuss whether to crack down. Mm. And of course they did at the beginning when it was only 500 people who went out to demonstrate in Leipzig, they had every ability to end the demonstrations then. And they didn't because they thought it's only 500 people, so they don't pose an existential challenge to us, and it's better to just let it go? It's, or what was better, the... it's better to let it go. If we crack down on them, we have bigger issues to deal with. Let's not use our political capital here. Well, the 500 then grew to 700, and then the next week it was 1,000, and 1,500. And at some point, they start discussing seriously. Again, they take up the issue again. Shall we crack down? But now a crackdown is going to be something bigger. It's going to get more attention in the international press. It's going to draw more attention to the weaknesses of East Germany. There are many East Germans who are receiving news from, from West Germany. So again, there's a discussion and they decide, in fact, by one vote, hmm. not to crack down the by last one time. vote. By one, by one vote That's in the political, they decide because they're divided. Some people right. say, you know, this is just look at the trend. It's going 500, 700, 1,000, 1,500. This is this is you know growing exponentially. Every week, more people are coming out. And there are some people who say we've got to stop it here, regardless of the cost. And there are other sources say based on various intelligence reports that think that it's just going to plateau. It's going to stagnate, it's going to, plateau, it's going to, it's going to stagnate, cold, people will get bored. People will get bored, it's getting winter is approaching and fewer people come out in the winter and they look at other cases in other parts of Germany where there have been demonstrations that grew a little bit and then plateaued and were forgotten. Anyway, the Politburo is, is divided. By one vote they decide mm. not to put it down. And before we know it, people start leaving East Germany and they march to the Berlin Wall. And we know what happens then. The wall comes down and then that triggers, changes expectations in other East European regimes, in Bulgaria, in what was then Czechoslovakia and and so on. And each of these regimes falls one after the other. So it's interesting because each side of this has to engage in a set of rational calculations, right? So the Politburo says, well, if we always crack down on even the smallest shows of dissent, that may actually breed even more dislike of a regime and it's going to get us all kinds of bad attention, which may be a problem. So let's pick and choose which ones to crack down on 
but then they can get that wrong because suddenly it grows and when it grows the downsides of cracking down become bigger as well. On the other side there's also individual protesters who are engaging in a rational calculation, right? And as I'm remembering this from my comparative politics field survey, my understanding of the basic mechanism you outline is that you know, there's 50 people out in the street and I go and join them and there's a crackdown, the likelihood that I might get killed or jailed is very high. So only the people who have the strongest dislike of a political regime and who have the least to lose because they might not have family and whatever other calculations go into this are going to be willing to join those 50 protesters. But once you have 500 protesters in the street, the risk for any one person becomes smaller. And once there's 10,000 people in the street, you start to realize they can't lock all of us up. And so it becomes even smaller. And so the more the size grows, the more people potentially cease falsifying the preferences and join the protest. Exactly. And this is a calculation that leaders in every repressive regime are making all the time. And they realize as they let it grow, the cost of joining it to a dissenter who until then has kept his or her private preferences, private, has falsified his or her, her preferences, the cost to them of joining the demonstration is, is falling. And that's a the calculation they're making. The Chinese government now is doing this in a very sophisticated way with social media. There are various platforms where they allow people to express dissenting views, but the, at the same time, they're tracking who is expressing dissent. That is valuable information to them. They do want to know something about people's private preferences. So they do want certain platforms where people express their discontent about factory closings in a particular area or the quality of schools or repression or this and that. They want to know what is making people upset because there's some things that they can fix at no cost to themselves that won't threaten the regime. They want right. to know... Uh, when a local uh, uh, politician is especially corrupt and incompetent, they can actually depose uh, him and give an easy win to the regime. Beijing wants to know this. Right. Beijing wants to know. Now, there might because of the corrupt person is engaging in corruption on his or her account, the regime in Beijing is not benefiting this. They want to know this. And how are they going to get this information if the people locally are afraid, but they've created certain social, social media where they allow people, they give people a semblance of anonymity. Mm -hmm. They rarely interfere. At the same time, they know exactly where the people are located. They right. even so if, if somebody if, were to become a really influential protest leader, they know exactly which door to that's knock That's exactly. And they know exactly the, which door to uh, knock on. And as long as somebody is a small scale dissenters and they're just griping about things on the factory floor and cost of, of this or that, they want to hear this. And they want to address these problems. After all, they're trying to stay in power. And you can't stay in power forever if all you're doing is repressing and you're not providing services to people. And the Chinese government has been quite successful on, on many dimensions. It's, for decades, it's been the world's largest, fastest growing uh, economy. They would like that to continue. 
Right. And they know that they have to get some information. They know that many people are not going to say this in public forums, that they will only do it on social media. So they have actually created platforms that not only give people a sense of anonymity and allow them to express dissent, but they've developed algorithms that collect information from all across China to identify problems that in people's mind, problems that are not getting expressed. So this is a very sophisticated operation and there's good research, for example, by Jennifer Pan and others showing that uh, the Chinese regime is quite willing to let people uh, express discontent, but it immediately steps in when uh, there's a call to action. Even if a call to action is conducive to the regime, even if it says we're going to do a nationalist demonstration against the Japanese, they don't like that idea. But nevertheless, my understanding is that if they take your concepts seriously, and particularly the possibility of these preference cascades, they should be quite concerned. The position may not be as secure as it seems, because if they get the calculation wrong in some particular case, it could make it less expensive, or less scary to people to reveal the real preferences. And if enough people start to join in, then that suddenly lowers the cost sufficiently for the next batch of people to become activated. And a system that seems very stable today can turn out like the emperor without any clothes to be naked tomorrow. And it can happen very suddenly. And people who are not dreaming of demonstrating if another event like the Tiananmen Square demonstration suddenly breaks out, you might find hundreds of thousands of people go out and demonstrate because they're fed up in one way for one reason or another. Now, a number of years ago, I was at Tsinghua University in Beijing, and I was in the office of a well-known social scientist, and I was quite surprised to see on the bookshelves lots of books on revolutions, on autocracies, on instability of autocratic regimes. And I said, this is just out in the open and aren't you afraid? And he said, as long as I am writing using these works to teach people at a very high level who are publishing in international journals and I'm limiting it to that, limiting it to high-level analysis, and I do not use it to write op-eds that are going to point to vulnerabilities of the regime. And I don't try to organize my students to demonstrate. I don't become an activist. They're fine with this. Mm, because they know that with China's top 20, 30 universities, where the faculty regularly go abroad, that they cannot keep these books and articles and the information contained in them, they cannot keep them secrets. They cannot keep them. In fact, they don't want them to be unaware of developments in modern political right. science and economics and sociology. They want them to have exposure to that. They want them to operate at the highest levels. Well, and more cynically, for somebody who is trying to ensure that they are not swept out of office through a preference cascade, 
understanding your work and these concepts may potentially prove quite useful. Well, it can prove useful to at the center understanding the system in that it would give them some hope, it would give them a sense that the work need not be in vain. But let's not forget one of the lessons of the East European revolutions is that the leading dissenters who understood that this whole communist system rested on lies as the signs of the collapse started to emerge, they didn't see them. Hmm. They were as surprised. Václav Havel is my favorite example because he wrote a famous book about how the system was so vulnerable to a collapse. Right. And yet, when Gorbachev came to Prague about a month before the Czechoslovak communist regime collapsed, and people came in the millions out to demonstrations. They traveled from far away to Prague to see Gorbachev to participate in a demonstration. There was just enormous enthusiasm. And a New York Times reporter asked Václav Havel, is this an early sign of a revolution of a successful uprising that would do what was suppressed in 1968. And he said, I'm not a dreamer. And these people are dreaming the Soviet Union is never going to let go of its satellites. Wow. He did not think that Gorbachev was free to let go right, of right. Eastern Europe, that they would come marching in as they had in 1968. Yeah. He himself didn't see that people were far more fed up in 1989 than they were in 1968, and that the Soviet Union was a lot weaker. So I think this gives us a really helpful vocabulary, a really helpful lens to think about the world. But I want to fast forward a couple of decades, what we've already talked about China today, to make sense of political developments in North America, in Western Europe, in Central and Eastern Europe right now. The first question I suppose I'm asking myself is whether people in liberal democracies that have been used, at least to a really large extent, to be able to say what they want, may potentially fall prey to similar forms of preference falsification. So to give one example, I was in a shop run in the west of Hungary a couple of months ago uh, for some reporting. And I was really struck when I spoke to people in the streets there that they would not answer any questions, even without their name, on audio. It was for a BBC documentary. They said, if I tell you what I really think of a regime, I might lose my job tomorrow. Certainly in Turkey, which uh, you know very well, there is now real fear among academics, for example, to criticize the regime or even to stand up for some of their colleagues who are being jailed and attacked and fired. How do populists use things like preference falsification in order to cement their power? Well, populists are directing groups that are not entirely homogeneous. They are bringing together groups that 
resent the establishment for a large number of, of reasons. If their movement, if a particular populist movement is to become a major force, and if it's going to come to power, it has to smooth those differences somehow. One way that populist regimes do this is by defining what they stand for, defining what resentments are legitimate, mm -hmm. suppressing some of the contradictions, some of the conflicts between groups that are supporting them. In the United States, let's look at the people who are part of the Trump coalition. Mm -hmm. You have people in the Rust Belt whose main complaint, main source of resentment, or main reason for resenting the establishment is that the, the establishment has supported globalization and caused all sorts of jobs to disappear. There are evangelicals who have steady jobs, who have benefited from globalization, but they feel that their religion has belittled, they have resentments concerning abortion, gay rights, all sorts of social issues. These people have to be brought into a coalition. Mm. Now, this isn't the use of preference falsification to form a large social movement and to keep together a political party is, of course, not unique to populists. This is something that every major party has used even before the present age of populism. In the Democratic Party of the 1970s or the Republican parties of the party of the 1970s, 1980s, there were certain positions that you had to take to be a bona fide Democrat or Republican. There was, of course, in each party, a window of legitimate disagreement on which people could... And, and this is one of the crucial mechanisms in which, especially in majoritarian systems that result in two parties, you end up getting issue bundling, right? I mean, this is the only way by which we come to the otherwise difficult to understand situation in which if you are socially and culturally progressive, you also tend to prefer a bigger welfare state, or at least your political representatives are likely to do that. And if you're socially and culturally conservative, then that gets bundled in with a set of small government and so on preferences exactly which are which are not which don't go together naturally but they need to get bundled into one dimension in order to make two parties work and that's a form of preference falsification at work preference falsification to work and i'd like to now go back to the days when i first coined the term preference falsification when i presented my very first work on preference falsification it involved the two examples that I used were India and the caste system, and the second was the case of communism. And of course, this was, this was before 1989. And what I was in my earliest work trying to explain is how preference falsification was perpetuating a disliked regime or mm -hmm. a widely disliked and inefficient system of stratification like the caste system in India. Mm. The reaction I got from 
audiences, early audiences at USC, UCLA, a couple of Eastern universities as well, was you've written a paper that explains to us how inefficiencies persist in non-democratic regimes. But the model you have presented says nothing to us about democratic regimes because, because we, we have, have freedom, freedom of speech, speech and we, we have, have freedom of speech right my answer was the fact that you have a constitution that gives you the freedom to speak doesn't mean you're always going to exercise that and in fact various institutions even in democratic systems work only because of preference falsification and we just identified one of the functions of preference falsification in a two-party system holding the parties together. If I can just add one thing, the extent of preference falsification can vary over time. Mm -hmm. It was much less in the 1970s and 1980s than today. So the tensions you have in the Republican Party today or the tensions in the Democratic Party are much greater so I think the parties themselves are less stable hmm. than they were because there is so much preference falsification going on because of the issue bundling that you mentioned. But the differences that the issue bundling has to cover are much greater. So I guess it, it depends a little bit what you think about the domain of preference falsification, which is to say what kinds of things do you have a reason which doesn't need to be I might go to jail otherwise it can be I lose my position or I lose a lot of money or I lose respect of my fellow citizens I lose status I lose status so what area of things does that entail right one of the fears I have about populist countries like Hungary or Turkey is that you can only have one legitimate answer as to who you want to govern as to what you think of the person who's in office. Um, uh, so wherever you are in a somewhat prominent position in Turkey today, if you say, I dislike Recep Erdogan, I think he's a terrible president, that is going to cost you in one way or another, all the way from no longer getting invited to dinner parties and being greeted by your neighbors, to going to jail, depending on your prominence and the degree of danger that you pose to the regime. Right? In the United States, we're clearly not there right now. In many parts of a society, it would be dangerous to your status uh, uh, and your neighbor's opinion of you if you said you liked Donald Trump. I may no longer have to know if you then. So that may be a difference, right? So the first question I suppose is, how did it happen in Hungary, which was a free country 10 years ago? How did it happen in Turkey, which was a flawed democracy, but a real democracy 15 or 20 years ago, that now people have to engage in preference falsification about something as basic as what do you think of the president of your country? As you noted, Turkey was a flawed democracy, but it was a democracy where power changed hands through the ballot box where you could draw cartoons lampooning the president and the prime minister, where you could criticize them, where you could hold them responsible. In Turkey now, the line of the lines are drawn such that criticizing 
the president or any member of his family or any member of his immediate circle, of his current immediate circle, I should say, is equated with treason. And this didn't happen all of a sudden. This happened as Erdogan systematically undermined checks and balances. Now, part of this happened because when you stay in power, it's now been 17 years, for a long time in a country where judges, including Supreme Court judges, have to retire at 65, you get to a point where You've you, appointed have made, all of the you have made all the appointments. Yeah, yeah. And at the beginning, when he, he first came to power 17 years ago, he was being cautious in making his appointments, all the appointments he has made in the last 10 years, to the high court and other appeals courts and other courts, they are all ideologues. They're all strong supporters of them. So that gets rid of one of the checks and balances to the courts that used to routinely in Turkey void government decisions as unconstitutional. This is just unimaginable today because, uh, because of that. In the Turkish case, you also had the military that had a special role under the constitution to be the defender of secularism and Ataturk's principles, the defender of last resort, and they could step in. And in fact, he had done this four times before when it felt secularism was in danger or that other elements of Ataturk's reforms were in danger. Now, we can argue whether a democracy, in a democracy, there is a role for the military to play, there was a huge debate in Turkey among liberals, and there was a constitutional referendum. Many liberals I have enormous respect for campaigned for getting rid of the military's role in 2011. Right. And this passed by a very narrow margin. The constitution was changed to sideline the military, to push the military completely out of politics. Now, my good liberal friends who supported this did it under the notion that Turkey was a flawed democracy and it was a flawed democracy partly because the military had this role to play and they felt that Turkey had modernized enough that it could become a full democracy that it could make the transition from a flawed democracy to a full democracy, and that the way to do that was to sideline uh, the military. And instead, you believe that what actually happened is that the involvement of military certainly was one of the signs of a flawed democracy, but once you took that out, it essentially allowed Recep Erdogan to capture the system entirely. So this uh, enabled him to capture, this was the last thing he had already captured the judiciary, he had already captured through his populism and through some, I would argue, some good management, good economic management. The Turkish economy was doing very well. He had quite a lot of genuine support and he was able then through his popularity and the strength of the Turkish economy and the lack of any resistance from the uh, judiciary, which was 
an autonomous branch of government, he was able to start becoming bolder. And that is when he started, started becoming increasingly corrupt, increasingly nepotistic, kleptocratic, and people who criticized him started going to jail. And you start, you look at the number of journalists put behind bars, you look at the promotions at universities, and everything starts getting politicized. Mm. And one by one, he starts getting rid of the checks and balances. The media was another. Turkey had an independent media. And you had, from the far left to the far right, a wide range of newspapers. And you had dozens of television stations where you had genuine debates. Mm. He systematically took them over, had his cronies buy these companies one after the other. And of course, by jailing, intimidating journalists and uh, uh, television anchors and, and so on, he eliminated one source of opposition. Did the same thing to universities so that people right, right. who used to argue prominent academics who used to write op-eds criticizing government policies. And I'm not uh, uh, talking necessarily about or referring necessarily to criticisms of Erdogan's style. People who would uh, write about the energy sector or uh, uh, relations with Russia or Turkey's policy vis-a-vis -vis Syria. Uh, these people stopped writing entirely, hmm. uh, they just withdrew into their academic research, or they became mouthpieces of the regime. Wow. And the regime provided huge incentives for these prominent people to flip. And there are plenty of them, and this just enabled him to increase his, his power. Very similar things, of course, have happened in in Hungary yeah, and yeah. in Poland to an extent. So, so I think the, the million dollar question then is, is there something specific about places like Turkey and Hungary and now to some extent Poland, which allowed that to happen? Or is this a set of mechanisms that could happen anywhere, including in the United States? Uh, you know, some of the obvious dissimilarities that the United States is a much more uh, affluent country, uh, which matters, both because it's easier to fund civil society organizations that are independent uh, and because the government has less influence on people's livelihoods. I was struck by the extent to which in Sopron the answer that people gave me was, I might lose my job. And I asked them, well, do you work for the government? No, I work for a private company, but a lot of its contracts come from the government. So there are all kinds of ways in which a populist regime can put people under pressure. Another obvious dissimilarity is simply the long history of democracy in the United States, the deep way in which the values of the Constitution are embodied in, in the population, the greater difficulty of uh, claiming that the United States is somehow under existential threat from the outside because it has been stable and it is so big and it is so powerful. So taking all of these things together, and I could list a few more, um, do you think that if uh, uh, Donald Trump learned from people like Erdogan and Orban, or perhaps more realistically, a smarter reincarnation of Trump's energy where to succeed him, something similar could happen here? 
Yes, I, I think it's entirely possible uh, for it to happen here. It's harder, it would take a longer time. Uh, the United States is a much stronger civil society. Civil society was born in the 20th century in, in Turkey for historical reasons. You didn't have autonomous private organizations in Turkey before the 20th century. This has to do with uh, the lack of a concept of corporation the Islamic law. So civil society didn't go as deep in Turkey as in the United States. Turkey doesn't have as long a tradition of people organizing it against the government and feeling that it is their birthright to criticize a government and to organize against them. This, I think, is something that works in the in the favor in favor of the United States. But we have to also realize that the United States has undergone major changes that pose huge threats to its democratic system as we've come to uh, to know it. What kind of changes? One that I think poses the biggest danger is that the, the basic fault line, the most important fault line in American society is ideology. When you ask people, would you mind if somebody of a different race, let's say you ask white people in the Midwest or in the South, would you mind if an African-American moves next door? The numbers have steadily declined. The number of people who answer yes or probably is around 20% now. But you which sounds people, pretty bad, but it's much lower than it used to be. Which sounds very bad, but it is much lower than it was than the 60% figures we were getting half a century ago. Yeah. Now, ask them what political party they support. Suppose they say Democrat and ask them, would you mind if Republicans move next door? Around 40% of the people hmm. say of both parties with a slightly higher percentage of Democrats saying they would be upset if somebody of the opposite party moved in. Hmm. Same thing when you ask them, would you mind if your son or daughter married somebody who supported the other party? Numbers are astonishingly high now yeah. relative to the past. In the past, the numbers of people who said they would care was around Very 10%. Huh. This has risen into, into the 40s. So, and, and this and so what, 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 what systematic impact does that have? Is it about, you know, somebody like Steve Levitsky and Dan Ziblatt would talk about it in terms of the ability to tolerate each other and constitutional hardball, that when you have such strong ideological partisanship and you think that anybody with different ideological views um, is so dangerous, you become much more willing to say, well, blow up the system as long as it helps my side win in the short run. Is, is that the mechanism exactly. or would you think this, of it differently? This is, this, this is, I think you put your finger on exactly what the problem is. Now people consider those who hold opposite views, who support the opposite party as illegitimate. So in the 2016 presidential election, the losing candidate, Hillary Clinton, made the remark that half of her opponents, Trump supporters, were deplorables. That resonated with people enormously. 
because people understood exactly what she meant. She was essentially saying half of the supporters of my opponent are illegitimate. Mm -hmm. They don't deserve a hearing. Well, this means I am not going to listen to their views. I don't think that the issues that they are pointing to as problems need to be considered as problems. There's nothing to be uh, solved there. They have to accept our view of the world. Right. Now, There's Trump, just Trump bad is, people that need to be outvoted. Trump had been doing this very explicitly. She did it through a code word, but everybody understood that she meant essentially when Trump put down the fake news media and wouldn't allow certain journalists into his press conferences. It's doing exactly the same thing. It's basically saying that there are certain people who are just beyond the pale. Right. Their views, their interpretations are not worth anything. We don't have to talk to them. If you're the sort of person who reads that newspaper, you are legitimate anyway. We don't need to try and reach them or to inform them. And so, we don't need to compromise with you. Right. And democracy is a system that works with compromises. Hmm. If you are willing to compromise with only 60% of the population, you have ruled out 40% of the population. You said, I don't have to compromise with them. It means you're willing to repress them. And that is not sustainable in the long run. That is something that has to change. So is one way of thinking about this that the regime of preference falsification operates at different scales in authoritarian regimes on the one side and in deeply ideologically divided democratic regimes on the other side? So in a country like Turkey, everybody has to falsify their preference about the president. Now, if you are a beggar in the street who's just shouting like a lunatic, nothing will happen to you if you keep shouting, but it is like Mr. Erdogan. Whereas if you're an academic with uh, a big audience, then the consequences are likely to be much more severe. Uh, but everybody has some reason to engage in preference falsification. And they are supposed, they're incentivized to falsify the preference in the same direction. Now, in a country like the United States at the moment, the way you describe it, it's a little bit different. It's that we have at least two different spheres and perhaps five or six different spheres of preference falsification. That if you are a Republican congressman, you have to pretend that the latest daft remarks made by the president were fine. You either have to praise them, that's where your incentive lies, or at most you can fail to return emails from news outlets asking for comment on it. On the other hand, if you're part of a left coalition, whether that's because you're a democratic congressman or because you operate in spaces that are culturally predominantly left-wing, it's the other way around. In those spaces, if you said, I really like Donald Trump, I think he's doing a great job, um, you would have very poor consequences. And then you can sort of filter it further down and say, perhaps even within the left, there are different spheres and there's a sort of far left sphere and a liberal sphere and so on and so forth. Is, is that one way of thinking? Yes, about? yes. No, it's, it's a very good way of thinking. About it. It's still, we're not like Hungary or Turkey where it's just impossible to criticize the president in the close circle of the president without getting in trouble, unless you're 
somebody who's just of no consequence at all, like, uh, as you said, a beggar in the, in the street who can just be treated as somebody deranged. But if you're in a, in a position of power, if you're a professor, a journalist, you're certainly going to get in, in trouble, maybe, maybe very big trouble. That's not the, the case in the United States. Now, the United States is very polarized and people on the left criticize Trump routinely. There are plenty of news outlets that criticize him and that are investigating his various policies, various uh, initiatives. But it doesn't mean that this will hold because there are many people on the right a large percentage of the Republicans would approve of policies that restrict criticisms of Trump. And similarly, I think that if somebody from the far left were to come to power, they would feel compelled to restrict what criticisms of their policies can be expressed. We already see this in universities. Political correctness is a form of censorship. It is a phenomenon that has a chilling effect on, on discourse. And it's quite well known that most top universities in the United States are uh, have faculties that are predominantly on the left. And it is quite well known that all the major universities support affirmative action of various kinds. They support safe spaces and various initiatives that are dear to the, to the left. Criticizing these, it's really difficult. Not that there aren't people who do this at universities, but Universities are not havens of free speech. So that's an indication that there are even educated people working at, at institutions that are built on discourse, exchange of ideas. Even they are capable of restricting discourse, restricting expression, declaring some ideas as beyond the pale so that ex it's expressing them can be grounds for dismissal. Yeah, some of these cases are really interesting uh, when you think of something like affirmative action, which I think has near universal assent on college campuses, at least in terms of what people will say about it. Uh, but it actually, according to most polls, has a clear majority against it in the wider population. So this nicely illustrates the way in which you can have uh, real social penalties for expressing certain points of views within one social group that actually are minoritarian among the population as a whole. I, I guess I have two questions that this brings to my mind. The first is about the way in which these different spheres of preference falsification could level up into one unified one. Right. So what you're saying is it could be that suddenly, instead of having certain places where you can't uh, criticize Donald Trump and other places where criticizing affirmative action is a problem. 
it might get leveled up into one unified sphere where suddenly all of us live in fear of criticizing Donald Trump. So that's one question that I have to you. And the other question, which perhaps we can start with, is about how effective preference falsification is in shaping the actual views of people. So it seems to me, for example, that in a lot of the mainstream media in the United States, uh, 10 or 15 years ago, I would have said that a broadly center-left liberal point of view was dominant, and it allowed for a lot of far-left voices and a few conservative voices uh, to join the discussion, but the sort of standard assumptions were left liberal. Um, I think now, in many ways, the further left has come to dominate in those spaces. And being dominant, they can be quite generous and they allow a couple of liberals and a few conservatives to the table. But that really is the standard mode and anything that descends from it is inspected quite carefully. I guess your work makes it clear how uh, preference falsification may be part of a mechanism that produces those rapid and large-scale shifts. What your work doesn't directly speak to, and I'd love to pick your brains about, is the extent to which that'll actually change people's minds. Is it that the average New York Times reader has moved significantly to the left as a result of those changes in editorial policy? Or do you think that they aren't that impacted by it, that actually those political views are not that easily moved? No, th there is actually an impact. And in the book Private Truths, Public Lies, which tries to look at the effects of preference falsification more broadly and at dynamic effects, there is in fact a large section of the book that deals with the effects of expressive distortions on the way people think. Mm -hmm. And actually there are systematic effects of preference falsification on the way people think. So in the Soviet Union, in the 1970s, many people, because the regime constantly showed them problems in the Western world and showed on television every night, they showed people images of poverty in inner cities and racial conflict. And so people believed that actually, and at the same time, they were downplaying all the problems of the Soviet system, emphasizing, highlighting all the successes. Many people believed that the Soviet Union was actually going to overtake the United States and any problems that they observed were just transitional problems. Hmm. So you can affect the way people think, but if the ideology gets way out of line with what people can actually see through their own eyes and hear through other sources, then people may start seeing the whole system of seeing public opinion as managed and lose trust in the system. And this That's is exactly what, yeah. this is what happened in the Soviet Union. There came a point where even when the broadcasters, the news programs were telling them the truth, they no longer believed it because they were getting information by then. They were getting information through some Izdat literature. They had more access to information from Western Europe and they were seeing that the cues were not disappearing, that the quality of 
the consumer goods were not improving hmm. and they would just see how much better the Westerners coming to visit seem to be uh, living, this information started spreading. And when people lose trust in the system, then they tune out. That's and they said, so yeah. this is the kind of thing when Donald Trump dismisses the New York Times uh, as well as similar publications and TV stations that take similar positions, the center left or far left, let, let's suppose that they all represent the center left to far left uh, spectrum. When he dismisses it all as fake news, he's trying to peel people off and say, you know, you're, this is just, you're being fed a series of lies, it's all distortions, and there are people who have been predisposed to believing that all along. Why? Because their particular problems were not receiving any attention. Hmm. So when people talk about the flyover states that don't get any attention from the New York Times, they're referring to people who actually feel that their own for years, their problems in the Rust Belt, all the costs of globalization, didn't get attention right. from the New York Times, didn't get much attention from the universities, which was which was far more heavily focused on all the advantages of globalization. Mm -hmm. And the universities, major universities, are part of globalization with far more foreign students, for you know, interactions, sending students on semester abroad programs and so on. They're all part of this process of globalization that some segments of society are not a part of. Yeah, so that makes it easier to then lose legitimacy. I mean, one of the interesting things in what you're just saying is that it implies that it's much easier to sustain those kinds of lies about things of which you don't have direct experience than ones that you do. For the Soviet system, it was much easier to shape people's views about the United States because what did they know? Uh, but it's much harder to shape people's perceptions of the Soviet Union, because even though it's hard to generalize from your experience to that of everybody else, when the story of legitimacy comes to be too far out of whack with what you can see right outside your window, no amount of propaganda is going to remedy that. If I can just jump in with East Germans and West Germans, that was particularly extreme. the contrast was particularly extreme because East and West were more or less at the same level of economic development at the beginning of World War II, let's say, and the gap had just become hmm. huge and there were people who could actually see the contrast. Right. And yeah. because West German television was visible in East Germany, because there was some travel and so on. And there's two other things here that, that I want to just double click on. So one is that, you know, it'll be interesting to see how some of campus culture plays out in the next years in that respect, because I think there was a big battle over it when it really was quite contained to campus. But I think we're now seeing much of the vocabulary that was developed there and much of the ways in which people are being trained, the ways in which group identity is emphasized now in primary schools, where people are split into affinity groups that meet every week and things like that. And so once people see that playing out in their own lives, through their own children, at their own workplace, it'll be interesting to see what the reaction to it will be, even on parts of the left, whether it actually is capable of broader assent or whether there will be a real counter-reaction against it. But I actually want to ask you a different question, which is about the story of justification that populists tell. 
I mean, in the Soviet Union, you had a story of justification which had some pressure on it because it claimed to be democratic and it wasn't. But the most important story really was about the living standards of the working class and economic progress. And for a while, communist regimes were reasonably good at delivering on that. And as it became harder and harder to tell that story, the legitimacy declined. And as your work explains, that made them quite unstable. And we should uh, remember in these depressing times where lots of democracies are collapsing, lots of new dictatorships are being established, that dictatorships are quite brittle political regimes. They are ones that concentrate power, but whose power can also vanish. What about populist regimes? I've been thinking about this a lot, right? So the core claim of these populists is the system isn't really democratic. People are lying to you. They say that we live in a system where you get to decide, but really it's a small political caste of snooty elites in the capital who are making all of the decisions. And they are all corrupt and they don't really serve you. So I, the populist, am going to get in there and really fight for your interests and give power back to the people, as Donald Trump says. Well, then you find yourself fast forward by 10, 15 years in Hungary today, in Turkey today. And the populists have concentrated power in their own hands. They are phenomenally corrupt. Isn't there a very substantive gap here between the story of legitimacy that populists tell and what they actually deliver? And isn't that exactly the kind of thing that can potentially allow for mass rebellion if you get a preference cascade? Well, it starts undermining the regime. Erdogan is still pretending to be an opponent of the establishment. Right. He always talks about these enemies of the of the people. He represents the uh, the people and the people who are allied with these dark forces. It's the Jewish lobby. It's the financial lobby. It's the crusaders. It's the Kemalist secularists. It's the, the so-called white Turks who are the non-pious Turks. It, it's some coalition, some vague coalition of these groups that explains every failure hmm. of the regime. And that might work when you've been in office for three years or for five years, but once you've been in office for 17 well, years, that's a, that becomes a hard story to what tell. What we are seeing is Turkey is an electoral autocracy. And until now, even though the elections were becoming less and less fair and they were becoming less and less free, Erdogan was winning them. Hmm. Well, despite the very uneven playing field in the latest local elections, his party lost 12 of the top 14 cities, including Istanbul and Ankara. And this happened, people who have analyzed the votes have found that there have been shifts in neighborhoods that were AKP strongholds that supported Erdogan, and they've come to the point where they no longer buy mm. this argument. Yeah. They said, you've been in power 17 years, you were supposed to be strong enough to prevent these dark groups from creating all sorts of mischief for us, and you were supposed to solve our problems. Well, 
we have the same problems or now we have new problems and you're unable to solve them. So that's that's one thing. Another thing is people don't buy the argument that the presence of four million Syrian refugees in Turkey is the work of these dark forces because people remember well that Erdogan and his Minister of Foreign Affairs of the time, Ahmet Davutoglu, went on television and said in two weeks we'll be performing our Friday prayers in Damascus and Syria will be a vassal state. They didn't use those terms, but that's effectively what they were saying. You know, a neo-Ottoman empire will, mm. will get full. It's going to be that easy. The Syrians are, are uh, just... Right, they, they and all of that to turned come, out to come be... In. All of that turned out to be fantasy. And if there's one thing that Turks in this very polarized society agree on, is that they want the Syrians to go back. Huh. And they also sense that the Syrians are probably never going to go back because Turkey is a much richer country right, right. than Syria. And they've, they've now established new routes. Most of them are probably there to uh, stay. And they blame Erdogan uh, for this. Huh. Fascinating. So, yeah. Just in closing, because this has been so fascinating that we've gone on way longer than we should have, just in 60 seconds or so, what knowledge can defenders of liberal democracy and champions of freedom of speech, people who want to defend our political system against rising autocrats and who also want to make their own environment less subject to people who can punish them for saying things they don't like, what can they do building on some of these insights? How can all of these concepts be useful to them? We have to realize that democracy is a system based on compromise. Genuine compromise requires learning what others genuinely think, genuinely want. And we have to reinforce our institutions and restore our traditions that bring people of different views together and let them have genuine conversations. If we are unable to do that, we're on a slippery slope toward dictatorship. And what we see in Hungary and Turkey today are possible scenarios for the United States. Timur Kuran, thank you so much for coming on The Good Fight. Thank you so much for the invitation, and I greatly enjoyed the talk. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. This podcast is generously supported by the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like them, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Chess Pieces.